0: I didn't have like this big chip on my shoulder trying to find my like identity and place in music. It was more about feeling like I was bearing witness to something good that uh, I had seen in music and in the world around me and wanting to offer that to the world.
1: Welcome to The Resistance a podcast that features honest discussion with meaningful artists about the opposing forces we all face when moving toward our better selves. I'm your host, Matt Connor. Most days, you'll see me slouching. As a writer, I'm consistently hovered over my five-year-old MacBook Pro, an aluminum-clad companion to which I pull up each and every morning. Breaks are taken, lunch is eaten, errands are run. By and large, I'll once again settle back into the slouch. Yes, I realize that's not a good thing. Posture, I'm told, is important. A chiropractor told me years ago to sit on one of those giant medicine balls or maybe try a standing desk, but let's be honest, one feels outright silly and the other is uncomfortable after an hour. Someday I'll figure out that physical side. Posture, as it turns out, also has a creative side. According to singer-songwriter Drew Holcomb, When it comes to facing the resistance and overcoming those limitations, posture is everything against what he calls the winds of resistance. Drew says he feels the same amount of resistance as ever before, but he's learned how to position himself so he doesn't get knocked back. He's established the foothold. He knows the angle at which to lean in, and even when he feels the familiar forces at work against him, he's able to remain obedient to fragile, creative impulses. Drew's own catalog is a testament to this learned posture. It took several albums to develop the fervent audience and broad musical family he enjoys today, now as he headlines the Ryman, plays late-night TV, curates his own music festivals, and even creates his own vinyl subscription service. Few artists are spinning as many creative plates as Drew these days, let alone to also release music as compelling as that on his brand new album Dragons. It's all the result of having the right posture. For those of us still learning how to stand or which way to lean, Drew was kind enough to recently sit down and discuss his own history of wrestling with the resistance. All right, welcome to The Resistance. We're here with Drew Holcomb. We have the privilege of speaking to him today. Drew, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, well, we appreciate you coming on and being a part of this first season of The Resistance. Um Throughout this first season, actually we just want to read a couple sentences that come from Stephen Pressfield's book, "The War of Art," which is actually what informs the theme of the whole podcast. And he says this: He says, "Most of us have two lives: the life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two stands resistance. Uh, I guess I just wanted to start at, uh, with you on this subject. Just kind of asking what your current relationship is to resistance in whatever form that's taking in your life
0: yeah i I, I think for me by this point in my you know in my work life, which is you know is, is a creative life, um, having sort of taken a lot of steps over the years to kind of do battle with the resistance to those you know the, when you read that when you read that quote, I was thinking kind of, in that spectrum, I certainly feel like I'm leaning heavy into the into the you know the life the that uh the creative life that is within us. you know you, you never feel like you arrive at it. so I feel like in, in some ways for me, um, you know I've, I've kind of shored up uh the foothold that keeps me leaning in that direction. But you, but you never quite feel like you arrive because uh, it takes work, you know, and it takes self reflection, and it takes cooperation in order for for that life to kind of be realized. And so you never, you know, those the wind of resistance never stops blowing head headlong into you. And sometimes you, you know, at least I feel like I'm not going to get blown over, you know.
1: Yeah, you know what? What makes me curious about someone with your sort of longevity because on the outside, um, and maybe for those who don't know, but You know, you've had roughly one recording, um, every year for the last decade or so. Um, I just saw you and Ellie put out, um, tour dates, uh, for early next year. Some of those have sold out. You've got your own record club, the Magnolia, um, vinyl club, which just introduces a lot of great music. And then you're also curating your own music festival that seems to be going really well. And so. You know, All of that to say, it makes me curious how, how you've learned to maybe lean into the creative things that are in front of you and really kind of get over the resistance. And it also makes me wonder really just how much resistance you feel today when you've had some good successes under your belt.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot to unpack. And the question, about, I'll start with um, um, the idea of that where I feel the most resistance is typically in the songwriting process um you know touring and, and even recording those tend to feel like pretty quickly and easily satisfying for me um i'm I certainly experienced my fair share of um fear with getting on stage depending on the the context of the of the of the day or the the place uh or you know personal health you know always can kind of play a role in touring um <laughs> But I find that songwriting is still the hardest place to find. Um, uh, uh, to, 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 there's not necessarily a reciprocal relationship between the amount of work you put into songwriting and the satisfaction you get from the, the finished content. Because there have been times where I've been, you know, I've had writer's block for what what feels like months and, hmm. you know, finally get a song written and it's not good. And I still feel like I'm stuck in the block where other times it feels like I, you know, show up to write three days in a row and all three of the songs I'm I'm really proud of and feel authentic to my kind of creative voice. So that's, but regardless, you still have to kind of show up and do the work. So for me in that, one of the reasons I've started these, the record club and, and the festival and, you know, have a large output of music is I feel like, uh, from my sort of personality perspective, um, what you can't control creatively, you can, you can have a little more control by um, sort of the, you know, controlling the business side of it. And I think so many artists like either feel, uh, you know, too cool for the artist side mean the the create the business side, or they feel ashamed that they care or they rely on their team to do all that work for them. And, and I think there's actually, for me, there's a lot of satisfaction in seeing a creative work kind of find um, an audience, even if it's a small or, or, or limited audience. And so hmm. part of the, the, the shoring up to the, to the resistance that, uh, of, of the creative process is like taking a break and then going and finding an audience for what you've already created. Um, I find that to be, be in and of itself, a creative endeavor. It's an entrepreneurial endeavor. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It requires almost as much, if not more risk sometimes, um, than, than the creative process does
1: I knew a few albums back you guys had a release with dual tone and then and then pulled right back into your own label Magnolia is that right and, that is, and, right. and is that why uh, is that why that you chose to do that was like to create like to keep that control and 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 drive that bus so to speak um,
0: part of it was that and part of it was just the timing of the industry um, I, while I was on dual tone with that album chasing someday my team of manager and booking agent and, and publicist, everything flipped. And, um, the new team that I had had a track record of, uh, releasing records independently in a way that, um, my previous albums had not sort of had that sort of success. And so, um, uh, the, the dual tone folks were amazing, but they know my manager, the, the, they're both names are Paul and Paul. So Paul at Dualtone knew my, knew my new manager at the time, Paul, who's still my manager, but he was new then. So, um, there was just kind of a, a conversation that happened and they said, if you want to do it by yourself, we feel as confident that you'll be able to succeed with your new manager in that situation as you will with us. And so we kind of like, um, you know, freely give you the blessing to go do your own thing. Um, even though contractually there was no obligation either way. So, uh, Yeah, there was there was a sense that um, dual tone kind of showed me how to do it, and I learned, and it was like okay, well now I can now I can do this alone. But it's interesting because the the industry has even changed. That was seven or eight years ago. The industry's changed now, and um, we always have that conversation again with every record. Okay, should we find a label partner on this one or not? And uh, I'm sure at some point that answer will be yes. Um, The last Hmm. two times it's been no, but at some point it'll be yes.
1: You know, we were talking about your output. And you were talking about going through some writer's block, maybe even going months, and then and then here comes a song that's not you know that's not good, you know, like you said, um, and and yet the output has been so uh, prolific, if you or you know at least at least very consistent. So that makes me wonder how disciplined you are of, of a songwriter, uh, like like like, do you have a rigid schedule? Do you like how do you stay focused in the midst of that resistance?
0: Um, I don't have a rigid schedule and I don't have like certain days or times that I write every week, but I do write every week and I make sure that it's scheduled, but it's flexible. Um, you know, if I'm co-writing that takes like a logistical, you know, work. So that t- tends to be scheduled in advance, you know? Um, but then like the, the EP that I did with my friend Johnny swim was actually very, uh, sort of in the moment we had lunch one day in in Nashville, Abner and I did. And, uh, started talking about maybe writing a song together. And so I put a date on the books to fly out there and write a song. And it happened to coincide with the, uh, Charlottesville, uh, you know, race riot kind of, uh, race rally, whatever, whatever, however you wanted to, um, the right word is, but, um, and we were, you know, just super upset about all of that and and the, and the sort of leadership response to it. And so, we wrote ring the bells and goodbye road as a response to that moment. And you can't plan that kind of stuff. It just happens, you know? Um, Hmm. and, uh, then a month later I wrote a song, you know, with Penny and Sparrow that sort of felt like it was a companion piece to the songs I'd written with Abner and Amanda. So there was, you know, it was planned in the sense that like I bought a flight and we were going to write songs, but then the, the actual experience of what the writing felt like felt very in the moment. And so uh, that's part of the creative process for me is just showing up and making time for it and, and hoping that um, when it happens, there's some magic, but you only need like, you know, 10% of magic. If you, if you write enough songs, you know, if I write you know, 80 <laughs> songs in a year, I only need like 10 of them to be good. <laughs> and and that,
1: That's a pretty low batting average.
0: Yeah. And that's, and that's, but that's, like you said, that would make me pretty prolific because if I released a record a year, yeah. 10 songs, which I don't do that most of, usually released like every two years. And then the the stuff that you hear in the middle years is like an EP or a live record or a, a, you know, we did a covers thing years ago. So it's, uh,
1: you don't have to have a high batting average if you do the work enough. Hmm. Can you take me back to when you're first starting and maybe the resistance you felt as like a young, um, you know, artist with, with maybe dreams or I I don't even know. I mean, maybe you can tell me like, like, did you have pretty tangible dreams? Were you just making music just to make music in the first place?
0: No, I had very tangible dreams. Um, I wanted to make a living, you know, I wanted to, and that part of that was the external pressure that, you know, the people around you were like, so how long are you going to do this? You know, and you're like, well, it's my job. It's what, you know, how, long <laughs> you, how long are you going to do what you do? You know, um, so there was like a, a, a strong sort of, pride, you know, prove the critics wrong piece, the younger I was, that was sort of got weaker over time. Um, but it was very strong from the outset. Uh, and then, um, I mean, my goals at first were to sell out, you know, these small venues in in Memphis called the high tone, which held about 350 people. And then third and Lindsay back in in Nashville, which at the time held like a hundred or 250 people. So my, my goals were pretty modest but they still took like three to four years, you know, hmm. um, the music sort of process of finding your audience for most people is very long and slow. And, you know, you work a decade or two to be a, you know, quote unquote overnight success. But, uh, yeah, I did not plan on doing this professionally for like more than a couple of years though, to be honest. Um, so my, in that sense, I did not grow up thinking and dreaming of being an artist. I, I in high school, my dream was to be a history professor. I mean, which is (laughs) super nerdy, but it's just, it's just who I was. And, um, you know, that's a kind of an interesting piece of the puzzle for me is that I did not sit around playing guitar, dreaming of being on stage my whole life. And so in some ways that's given me the freedom to enjoy the process more, I think than, than, than some, because there was not an expectation. There was a hope, but there was not a, an expectation. Mm -hmm. That's two very different things.
1: Do you feel like you have a better, like if it all fell apart and I had to do something else, you have a better fallback plan than maybe a lot of your peers?
0: It's funny. The longer I do it, the less I feel like I have a fallback plan (laughs) (laughs) because you get, you know, you get to where it's your job and it's your income and you have kids and you go. So the the resistance and the pressure now is a lot more practical because it's like this has to work Um, because we built a life around it. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you also have the confidence that you, you know, we have confidence that we didn't have, you know, five, seven, 10, 14 years ago. Mm. So, so I think it kind of goes both ways.
1: Can you take me to the first, uh, and it may not be accurate, um, as much as our memories are accurate, but you mentioned, you know, I don't have the confidence. I had the confidence now that I didn't have X amount of time ago. Do you remember the, fi- the first time you really felt confident as an artist? Like was it the moment you sell out uh, one of those clubs you were talking about, the Third and Lindsley, or, um, or the High Tone, or was it before or after that? That's a
0: great question. I think the confidence came for me. There, I mean, there, were, there are were snippets of confidence all along the way. Like, yeah, selling out a show at the High Tone, or you know, playing the Third and Lindsley radio show on Sunday night. Um, uh, you know, selling a certain, you know number of albums in a crowd and feeling like there was just a great response. But really the most sort of the, the, the biggest moment for that for me was after I wrote the song called Live Forever. And it was the first time I had toured where people were like actively singing along every word to a particular song. Hmm. And it was mostly strangers, like faces I did not recognize. And that <laughs> that felt like, okay, the 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 work is winning. I'm not just like forcing this thing to yeah. happen the, the, you know, the, the music itself is doing some of the work.
1: Gosh, I love that phrase. The work is winning. Uh, I wanted to touch on something that you said, which was, you know, today the resistance takes on the form of really family provision. Like I'm assuming that you and your wife employ people. There's not just you depending on your music and probably not even just your family. Is that correct?
0: Oh yeah. 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 There's definitely a, a number of people that at least part-time count on the uh, provision of of our work providing um you know a a a decent part of their income. Yeah.
1: Does that become problematic at all or difficult to protect when there's sort of that commerce instinct? Hey, I need this to work because we have mouths to feed, bills to pay. Um and yet at the same time, you know, I'm assuming you want the integrity of the work and and like like do those two ever come in, in contact with each other?
0: Yeah, I think I'm in contact like with each other a lot. I mean, that's um, that's like the greatest tension in in my life and my work is that, um, you know, the work has to, like you said, that has to provide. Uh, the good news for me is that I always sort of towed like a hard line that I'm going to make work that feels authentic for me, and that's why I had success. And so it's easy for me to not easy for me, but it's, it's practical for me to stay the course and make work that feels authentic because that's what brought me success in the first place. You know, if I had um, started out by, you know, covering someone else's song and having it be a big, you know, hit and then trying to write my own songs and follow up and not working. And then, you know, then that's sort of like, you know, covering other people's songs would be the standard because that's Mm -hmm. what, you know, brought me success, but that's not been the case for me. I'd ever, you know, like, you know, I had early on, I had, you know, promoters that were like, Hey, you know, let me get you opened up for so-and-so country band and you need to kind of make your songs a little more country. And I'm like, I don't, that's not, I don't want to do that. That's not. So I made those decisions early on. And I think for me, because I didn't compromise when I was young, it's not like really a, a, a part of the conversation for me now that I'm sort of older, more established. Um, Cause I just, you know, I, uh, certainly you see things happen with peers, um, and you, and you want to you kind of like, man, maybe I should do it that way. It can be an easy, an easy, you know, temptation, I, I guess would be the right word, but, uh, mm. you know, but, but also looking at that and going, well, is that authentic for them? Like maybe, it, maybe it is, you know, authentic for us to do something like that on a recording or, you know, try that. Interesting thing live, you know, but then there's other things that don't feel authentic to, 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 you know, me and my sort of creative self. So, um, yeah, but I think establishing that from a, from the beginning has made it sort of the standard. And so I don't, I don't, I don't really run into that kind of in my psyche as much as, um, as much as I thought I would.
1: Hey, by the way, what informed
0: that so early on for you? Well, again, this wasn't the plan, you know, I didn't like being on stage and being like, you know, having a crowd like shower me with attention was not the point, <laughs> you know, I, I did this cause I loved songs and music had meant a lot to me growing up. And I, and I loved the emotion of it. Um, and I love the, the feeling of having a song that connected with someone's sort of story or the emotional moment of that part of their life. Mm-hmm. And so, to have done it in in another way would have, would have been, I I would just have rather kept going to school and be a history professor. You know, thankfully for me, it's some of that's personal. Like I grew up in a family where like, You know, my parents and my siblings were all were pretty supportive of each other. So I didn't have like this big chip on my shoulder trying to find my like identity and place in music. It was more about feeling like I was bearing witness to something good that uh, I had seen in music and in the world around me and wanting to offer that to the world. Not because I needed the attention. Now, don't get me wrong. Like you get the attention and it feels good and you can get lost in it. Uh, But it was not the, the
1: initial purpose. you've been listening to The Resistance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for more information and further episodes, you can find us at listentotheresistance.com. Our theme is composed by Chad Howitt. Engineering, production, and additional music by Jay Kirkpatrick. My name is Matt Connor, and I'm your host. Join us for our next episode with Toad the Wet Sprocket singer and solo artist, Glenn Phillips.